random stack of Uno cards up here. They're not mine. It's a, it's a funny thing. I use illustrations from time to time. So if something's sitting up here, people assume it's for me, and I just get to find out what's up here when I show up. Um, boy, last week, last week, uh, we kind of rolled out kind of a new vision and direction for, for Northwest, um, and not one that is prescriptive. It's, it's one of uh, a launching of a journey. Uh, last week's sermon, we really kind of looked at, uh, we talked about the, the expedition of Lewis and Clark and their uh, exploration across the United States, and how they expected to find a, a river passage, a northwest passage that would take them all the way from the east part of the United States to the west, that they would be able to cross uh, almost by boat all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Of course, what they failed to take into account was a little thing we've come to know today as the Rocky Mountains. 300 years of explorers and adventurers and map makers had assumed that the western part of the United States would function pretty much the same as the eastern part of the United States. And, and even as they were traveling towards uh, the Continental Divide, as, as Native Americans and others would tell them, you don't understand, there's mountains ahead, they would say, that's fine, we already crossed the Appalachians, we can do another set of mountains if we need to. But what they didn't understand is that the Rockies are not like the Appalachians. And as they crested some of the early hills and began to see the peaks in the distance and realized that there were mountains behind mountains behind mountains, it became clear that the canoes that they thought that they would be able to take to the headwaters of the Missouri River and, and then just put them on their shoulders and walk over the next set of hills and down to the next uh, river that would take them to the Pacific were not going to be very helpful. That those canoes were really only good for firewood as they got a new set of skills, a new set of equipment, a new set of uh, leaders and guides and all kinds of different things, it became apparent to them very quickly that the challenges that were ahead of them were not like the challenges that were in the past, and that the tools of the past would not be effective as they dealt with their current situation. The church today finds itself in a similar uh, situation. The church is in uh, new waters, and it turns out that the canoes that have got us this far in the journey are not going to work as we start our adventure into the mountains. That the church is going to need new types of leaders and new skills. Uh, adaptive change is going to need to come in. And when we come up on challenges, we aren't going to be able to say, oh, this is like in the past when this happened and we tried this other thing. Let's just dress that up, give it a new logo, and try it again. Those things aren't going to work in part because many of the solutions of the past have led to the challenges of the future. And so the old answers can't solve new problems. And so as churches and Christians today, what we need is a willingness to go out and to go where God is sending us, to deal with new challenges that are ahead and in the present. And last week we talked about how Northwest and the leadership of this church have come up with a, a three first steps and this is going to feel very broad if you want an easy one, two, and three solution to where we are. But, but this is how we're going to move into the mountains. The first thing is like Moses and Israel as they went to the promised land, Moses tells God, God, if you will not go with us, then do not send us up from this place. That, that Northwest, if we're going to go forward off the maps and into uncharted territory of figuring out what it means to be the Christians in this new world that we live in, if we're going to go into that place, we will not go without the Holy Spirit. That is right. 
we will not go without the Holy Spirit. And so the very first thing, and this is what we're starting today, the first thing that we're going to be doing is spending a lot of time renewing our understanding and our commitment to and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because if the Spirit will not go with us, then we will not leave this place. And the second one is that after a time of, of, of reacquainting ourselves with the Spirit, we're going to go into a season of listening. Listening to God, listening to uh, one another, listening to the church, and we're going to engage in some practices of sharing what we love about Northwest and what to treasure and, and hold tight. And what are things that we want to uh, have goals for Northwest? And what are things that we think, well, we've got some obstacles to overcome? And we're going to listen uh, to the members talk about those things and let God, through the shared voices of our church family, bring to the top the things that are going to be our first steps forward. And so we'll enter into that season of listening later this year. And the other thing is that we're going to have to get comfortable with failure. We're going to have to get comfortable uh, just taking risks for the sake of the gospel. We need to enter into a season of faith experimentation. And I don't mean crazy stuff unless we need to try some crazy stuff. Uh, we're not going to throw out the Bible. We're not going to get... You know, whatever. Still, the people of God, the people of the book, the people who are trying to be made into the image of Jesus Christ. But if the stuff that used to work doesn't work anymore, and we're headed into the mountains, we're going to need to take some risks, and we're going to need to try some things that maybe will work and maybe won't, and we're just going to be okay with failure. Paul talked about how. Uh, he became, to the Jews, he was like a Jew, and the yeah. Gentiles, he was like a Gentile. And he did all of this, experimenting and how to connect with all of these different people in all of these different contexts so that some might be saved. Which means that he'd gotten accustomed to a lot of failure. He took risks for the gospel. He took, uh, went out and tried experiments in evangelism, and a lot of them didn't work. Some of them did, and he counted all of those a victory for Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to enter into seasons of being willing to fail and take risk for the sake of the kingdom. But before we go anywhere, we need to talk more and a lot more about the Holy Spirit. We need to talk about uh, the third part of God. Uh, and this is something that, that the church has gotten out of the habit of talking about. And today what I want to do is look a little bit into the history of the church and the Holy Spirit and why it is that during some seasons and times in the church's history, we really cry out, Holy Spirit, we need you, and if you are not with us, we will not go up without you. And why other seasons, we kind of go, eh, the Holy Spirit's in the Bible. We read about him. We don't really know what it's all about. Why is it? that the church moves in and out of these two different streams, where at times we're passionate about the Spirit, and at times the Spirit seems to be very domesticated. Uh, but at the very beginning, the very birth of the church involves a dramatic inclusion of the Holy Spirit. So that in Acts chapter 2, in verse 32, it says this. This is Peter preaching in one of the earliest what would become Christian sermons. And he says... God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Today we sit here in this room as a family of believers who are these who are far off and who God has called who through faith and baptism have received this same gift of the Holy Spirit that Peter promised to those who were listening to his sermon so many hundreds of years ago, nearly 2,000 years ago. And Christians, by faith and baptism, have been receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit ever since. The birth of the church was a spirit-infused, spirit-driven, spirit-gifted birth. That's where the church began. And yet, as soon as Christianity comes into being, uh, there become these two different kind of streams that the church tends to go down. There's times when the church is in rapid growth and the church is on mission and the church is aware that the world is against it, that the church has a strong tendency to call on the Holy Spirit and to depend on the Spirit's empowerment and guidance as it goes through difficult times and troubled seasons. But there's another part of church history where the church gets comfortable and the church can become part of empire. We talked a little bit last week about how Christendom is the part of church history where the church had all kinds of power and all kinds of authority and all kinds of influence. There were times that church and royalty and government were so infused and married to one another, you couldn't tell where government began and ended and where the church began and ended because the church was so infused with the people in the most power. And what we learn in history is that during the seasons of the church that it has the most power and authority and comfort is that there's not as much conversation about the Holy Spirit. It turns out when you like where you are, you don't invite someone in who might shake things up. When the church was comfortable with its authority and influence, and it didn't feel that the world was challenging it, the church was often happy to leave the Holy Spirit just safely nestled in the words of Scripture. Not going to interrupt or show up or make too much of a difference in the daily happenings of Christians or churches. It's often seen during these seasons, it's often seen in the reading and teaching of the word, in the practice of communion, baptism, and marriage. It's involved in bringing salvation to the believer. Then in all of these key moments, we're aware that the Spirit is still doing things and showing up in those moments. But in the daily interaction with the world, we don't call on the Spirit to show up and make a difference. In the daily forming of our own character and virtue, and in the development of skills and gifts that we've been given, which Scripture tells us over and over again are gifts of the Spirit. We talked at length last year about the fruit of the Spirit, the character and virtue of God, which is contagiously placed in those who believe in Him. So that they might begin to develop the characteristics of God in them. That's the work of the Spirit. 
And the Spirit does that in our lives every day. But when we get comfortable with the status quo in Christianity, we just don't expect much. And when we pray, we often think of prayer as talk therapy. God, I'm going to tell you what I want, what I think, and what I feel, but I don't expect you to really do anything. And if you do, I may say something like, man, isn't that a weird coincidence? I prayed about that the other day, and it happened. That's so funny. It's weird how things work out sometimes. Because we forget that God shows up and interrupts. When the church gets comfortable with the status quo, Christians often get to a place where you're simply preparing and waiting for the end. That after you get baptized and you become converted, uh, that that you're like, okay, I'm now a Christian. What's next? And the basic idea is, well, I mean, show up every Sunday with the rest of us while we wait for Jesus to come back. Or you may die first. Either way, then you go to heaven. That's step two. There's not this adventurous risk-taking, open-to-failure, spirit-infused life in between conversion and salvation where we believe that God's kingdom interrupts what's going on in this world. It's not there. We're just waiting for the end. Christians become functional deists when we don't expect the spirit to show up. And and what I mean when I say functional deist, deism is the idea Uh, It's the religious idea that God created the entire universe in seven days, and then he went, man, I did a great job. Let's set it over there and see what happens. And then God gets way over here and promises not to interrupt anything that's going on in the creation that he has so beautifully made. He's put it in motion, and now we'll just see what happens. That's deism. So many Christians today, if you ask them, Do you believe that that's true? They would say, no, I don't believe that. But in your actual life, you expect so little of God that you might as well believe that. Do you expect so little uh, of the power of prayer that you might as well expect that God's not ever going to show up or interrupt or make a difference? We're functional deists. The spirit becomes the settled caretaker and babysitter that the church needs. It's going to make sure that nothing bothers us. The church of empire, the church of the status quo, prays more about safety than growth. Prays more about being on defense than on offense. Prays more about God not, not doing things that will result in discomfort, but making sure that our comfort is increased. And a tame spirit... During the seasons of the church's history that the spirit is domesticated and is tamed, there is a complete loss of mission. There is a complete loss of the partnering between God's people and the God that shows up in our lives and calls us to get into the world. Where there is a lack of mission, there is no need for the spirit. There's no need. And yet, in the world that we live in today... As the church becomes aware, either intentionally or just starts to feel like things aren't going the way we feel like they ought to be going. 
And if you go to any ministry leaders conference or read any uh, Christian publications or other stuff, everyone is saying it feels like things are off. It feels like things are getting worse. It feels like something's not going the way that God wants it to be going. We all kind of know that there's this tension between where we think the church should be and where it is every time we show up and the difference it is or isn't making in the world. There's a gap. There's a lack. And the more that the church becomes aware of that, the more that, that Christians start to realize that we don't have to send missionaries to other parts of the world to find a mission field, that we just have to go home. Oh yeah. That we just have to go to work. That we just have to, to walk outside of the walls of our church and we find ourselves in a very difficult mission field. And as soon as Christians start doing that, there becomes a renewed desire and a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit. It happens almost automatically that whenever the church is pushed out of the seat of influence and honor and to the margins and the church gets uncomfortable, almost immediately people start reading in their Bibles and going, man, there's these things that keep talking about a Holy Spirit that might be able to show up and interrupt and make things better. I want more of that. Oh, yeah. And so it should come as no surprise that in the last century in our country, especially the last 50, 60 years, there has been an unprecedented increase in writing and teaching and preaching and conversations and desire for the Holy Spirit in Western Christianity. Amen. Because it turns out if we're on a mission field, then we need to become missional. If we're becoming missional, we will not go without the Spirit. And it's so obvious when you get on mission that you need the spirit that you start reading and questioning and wondering. And there's this ache and this yearning for what we used to know that Christians are constantly rediscovering and finding and learning as they go forward into this new world. And I think there's five reasons uh, that we see this happening in our world today. There's five reasons that Christianity is experiencing this incredible, renewed interest in the spirit and the world that we live in today. And I want to talk briefly about these because I think they help us understand a little bit about why this shift is happening in our world and why we need to have the spirit as part of what we're doing as we go forward at Northwest. The first one is that Christendom has collapsed. We are on mission in our own homes. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If you read this passage a hundred years ago in this country, it doesn't make a lot of sense. hundred years ago in this country, if someone missed church on Sunday, their boss asked them about it the next day at work. Today, people don't go to church ever, and no one ever asks them about it or invites them. We live in a world that is much, much more similar to the world that Peter describes to the first Christians. He says, listen, you're living as strangers and foreigners and aliens and exiles you're the outsiders if you believe in this Jesus and put him on and try and live according to his way. You're the different ones. 
This is the world that we live in, a world where, where Christianity is not the norm, it is the exception. And so we start reading different passages and saying, Peter, that is so true. And we need to live such good lives among non-believers so that even though they may say bad things about us, that they can't deny that we at least believe what we say we do. Wouldn't it be great if, if people that were opponents of Christianity could say, I don't believe what you do, but I at least believe that you believe it. Indeed. Getting back to that, that desire is part of where we're living. But this collapse of Christendom uh, is part of the reason that there's this renewed dependence on the Spirit. Uh, there's been a renewal of interest and in study and writing and preaching uh, on the teachings of the Trinity. The idea of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That they're three in one. And that together they, they've formed different roles and different functions within, uh, within God's being and God's identity. God is one, but in oneness there is also threeness. And that difficult teaching that is mysterious to us has become cool again in Christian writing and teaching and preaching. Uh, in the past, an outsider who might have gone to a church and heard that there was a trinity might have thought that the trinity was, in fact, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Or an outsider might have thought that the trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Church. There's a renewed interest in the trinity that there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. Three in one. God united. The Spirit has reclaimed this place of primacy in the Trinity. This place that it belongs to have in the church's understanding and in the church's prayers and the church's teachings about who God is and how God functions. And it's all through Scripture. The word Trinity is not. So if you want to go find the word Trinity in the Bible, you won't find it. But if you want to find Scriptures that over and over again talk about how the Father and the Son and the Spirit come together to, to bring the gospel kingdom into the world... You'll find them everywhere. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 9, 14 says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, the Son, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living oh, yeah. God. Son, Spirit, Father. 1 Peter chapter 1, in his very introduction, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's in Hebrews, it's in Peter, and if you read anything from Paul, Paul loves to tell you everything he does is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he works them all into each other's presence all, just all the time. The God community functions in such a way as to save the human community. Uh, you've heard a lot of sermons that talk about how post-modernity is all bad. It's not all bad. Postmodernity is one of the five reasons that the Holy Spirit has such excitement about it in the church today. Because postmodernity is replacing modernity. 
And modernity believed that everyone could be everything could be studied and analyzed and observed. And, and guess what? You can't measure the Holy Spirit in a measuring cup. And you can't see it under a microscope. And postmodernity, with its willingness to admit that there are things that happen and exist in this world that we can't see and measure and explain and understand, that new interest in that which is not observable has opened the door for postmoderns to say, yeah, we don't understand it, but okay. We may not be able to see it, but that doesn't make it less real in the experience of my life in God and the life of the church that I'm a part of. Yeah. Well, can you touch it? Nope. nope. Do you believe in it? Yes. Yep. Postmoderns can say that way easier than their grandparents can. So postmodernity has opened the door to this conversation. The explosion of Christianity in the global south, in South America and Africa, uh, over in the Far East and the parts of the world where, where spirituality has remained an important part of life uh, for generations and generations and generations. And you tell them the world is infused with spirituality and they say, we know. And you say, and it's God that created it. And they say, okay, that's new. And you say, God, when you become converted because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his spirit can live in you. They just say, let's go. And the global south has this renewed and passionate interest in the Holy Spirit and all things spiritual. And it's starting to become contagious to the rest of Christianity. Those who we are, have been doing mission trips to are blessing us with their understanding of the world and helping us to catch up with who God is and where he's going Amen. and what he's doing. What a Amen. gift. What a gift. And finally, the renewal of mission is a centerpiece of Christian faith. Where the church has a diminished mission, it will always show up with a diminished interest in the spirit. And where the church has a renewed sense of mission, it will always show up with a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit. They are connected to one another. In Acts 1, verse 8, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Acts 1, 8 says this, yeah. but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the church goes on mission, the Spirit goes with it. And when the Spirit's in the church, the church goes on mission. And as the church becomes increasingly aware that even in the United States it exists in a mission field, we suddenly start crying out, for greater and more power oh, yeah. from the Holy Spirit to come into yeah. us and lead us and guide us because the mission of the church has been empowered and driven by the Spirit from its earliest hours. It was true then and it's true today. Next week we're going to start in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. And Galatians 4, 4 through 6 says this. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. There's a double sending and a double gift. There's a double sending and a double gift. We are going forward at, as this church, but we are only going forward with the spirit. 
And the Spirit is important because the Son has been sent from the Father to us so that we might be adopted as sons. But the Spirit is sent to us so that we might cry out, Abba, Father. The Son gives us adoption. The Spirit gives us the relationship to call out to God, God, you are my daddy. You are my father. You I love and I know that you love me. The double sending of the Son and the Spirit, the double gifting of sonship and daughtership, of childhood, of this adopted relationship, so that we might call God Father. That's the gift. And today as you listen to this sermon and you're thinking, well, I don't know about church history and I don't know about all this stuff. The question for you today is, have you received this gift of being adopted and being able to call God Father? Because that's what the Son and the Spirit and the Father are all about. They've been in that business from the beginning, and they're still in that business today. And if you need to respond to this gospel, please come forward this morning while we stand and sing. April of